Welcome to the 7 Minutes Podcast, Episode 8. This is a landmark episode. I'm uh, one of your three hosts, Zach. This is Angela. And this is Robert. And today we're going to be talking about hype, excitement, marketing, and video games with maybe a special focus on E3. But first, uh, let's go around and talk about what we've been playing since we last recorded. Robert, why don't you start us off? Hmm... Uh, I'm continuing to play Rise, Monster Hunter Rise. It's been really good, still. Waiting for more updates and more layered armor. Uh, I, is, it, is it like a service game where they do periodic updates? Uh, it's not really a service game, but they do update it. It's my understanding that the game shipped without, like, like there's an ending, but like they're supposed to add more to it, so... It's going to be getting updates for a while, and I'm sure it's going to get a lengthy expansion like uh, World did. With With Iceborne? Yeah, Yeah. I'm sure it'll get something similar. And then, uh, what else have I been playing? Uh, I guess a little bit of Mega Man 11. That's been fun to go back to. And I think that's it for what I've been playing lately. So something of a Capcom kick. I'm on a Capcom kick. That's all right. Uh, for me, uh, I am continuing to play a lot of Final Fantasy fourteen. We had a new patch, 5.5, drop since the last time we recorded. Bliss through all the story content for that, but there's still a lot to do. Um, I want to call out, there There has been a series of Nier, as in Nier Automata, themed uh, 24-man raids to do. And those are done, and they were... Like, they were fun to look at, fun to play, the music was great, but they just kind of felt like fan service in the world of Final Fantasy XIV. Like, as a, as a crossover, it was not that well integrated and not that satisfying, even for someone who had played Nier Automata. I was bored watching you play this content. But, like, even having played Nier Automata, which is far and away the most well-known of the Nier and Drakengard games, I, like, I don't know, like... Things seemed like they were supposed to make sense and didn't, and the whole thing just... Actually, to be honest, the, the they previously done a collaboration between Final Fantasy XIV and Monster Hunter, which had worked really well. I think part of that is just it's easy to fit hunting a giant dragon mm-hmm. into the world of Final Fantasy XIV, but you get to fight... I think his name is Rathalos, who's kind of a major mm-hmm. Monster Hunter monster, but you can do that. You can, get like a, you can hang out with a palico. Um, that worked pretty well. The, the near stuff, I'm not convinced by. There's some, there's a couple final quests that roll out in a week or two, but I don't know. It was fun to play, but um, also been playing some Final Fantasy XIV. I am finally officially a ninja. Uh-huh. Um, getting a hang of the <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> getting a hang of the control scheme. Um, it's a little more complex than when I was a. Uh, the heck was I a rogue? Yeah. Yeah. There's some additional things to learn, but it's okay. Picking it up pretty pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. The control schemes in Final Fantasy XIV can be hard to wrap your head around in general, partly because it's so customizable. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and I'm just not that type of player. I don't care about customizing things. <laughs> this is probably also why character creators don't really do much for me. You just want everyone to be Link or Majima. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather have an established character with a personality than 
kind of a no name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so our topic today is a uh, is a uh, you know not focused on a particular game could be kind of broad, uh, but you know when people think of hype and marketing where video games are concerned, E three has certainly historically been the big mm-hmm. big deal. Mm-hmm. I think exactly one of the three of us has been to E three. <laughs> Right. It would be me. Yeah. That's right. So maybe like a good place for grounding is uh, maybe talk about your, just your experience of like going to E3 for the first time. Okay. Man, it's been a while since my first E3. I guess I think my first E3 might have been 2014 or 2015. I should know this off the top of my head, but I don't. <laughs> I think for most of us growing up, if you're in your 30s or even maybe your early 40s, E3 was a major part of uh, just the video game landscape because it was essentially, I mean, it, it still is, but, you know, it's this giant, the biggest show. And everybody gives these announcements that are, you know, groundbreaking, you know, new game or a new system or whatever. So E3, it would always just come with this massive amount of hype attached to it. And so as a kid, I remember seeing updates about E3 and Nintendo Power, and they would always talk about whatever games are going to be coming up. But I was always aware of the fact that it was not for anyone to go to. It was always, oh, you had to be in the industry somehow. And so when I started writing for Nintendo, Joe, and realized, well, we have press credentials, we can go, I was like, well, I have to go. (laughs) (laughs) So my most of the people who work for the site or who worked for the site at the time didn't live anywhere near California. So I was like maybe one of two people who was in the state and I just was like, I'm going, I don't care how I get there. And to this day, this is the way I get there. I will take uh, Amtrak, but to take Amtrak from Jack London station, the way I would do it. So to explain, I didn't have a lot of money to go. So I couldn't get a hotel room. So it was like, especially because during E3 in Los Angeles, getting a room is more expensive than normal. Yeah. So I was like, how do I make this work? Because I didn't have a car either. So I decided if I take the Amtrak Red Eye, I will get there in the morning by the time the show starts, do the show until the evening, and then take the Red Eye back and get home in the morning. So that's what I did. And of course, the Jack London route doesn't just let you take the train straight to Los Angeles. You have to ride on the bus for like 70% of the trip. And the Amtrak bus trip sucks. Yeah, it does. It's not comfortable. No. It's hot. The only good thing about it is because I would get on at Jack London, I'd basically be at the start of the trip so I could pick whatever seat I wanted. So I'm always in the back. You know, as I'm talking about this, I'm having a little trouble remembering my first E3, but I just, the trip's the same every time. I I get to Los Angeles. It's interesting getting there for the first time because you get off at Union Station in LA and you have to figure out their train system. So the Bay Area has BART and my only other exposure to a metropolitan transit system, like train system, is LA's. And I feel like the Bay Area is a lot simpler with BART. Because I was like, so blue line, red line, what the hell does any of this mean? I finally figured out how to get to downtown. And then you walk just a couple blocks to the L.A. Convention Center. Yeah, I think the Bay Area Area Rapid Transit, Bart to his friends, is probably necessarily (laughs) a little simpler. Because like the conduit between 
San Francisco and Oakland is like central to like the whole hub. Mm-hmm. Whereas I can't, you know, I couldn't draw the LA train system off the top of my head, but it's, even though there is Union Station, there's not really like a, a central, like, you know, through point in the, in the same way in LA. It's more spread out. So you uh, walking into the convention center, the first year I went, and I, th- I don't think I'm misremembering this. I believe it was right before they started allowing the public to come in. I did at least one or two E3s before that started to be a thing. And I remember it was a different feeling going and there were not as many uh, just quote unquote normal fans there. It was mostly industry people. Uh, anybody who works at a GameStop knows that there are ways to kind of sneak into the show through working at GameStop. So that's a way that some kind of just on the street people find their way in. Hmm. Uh, and I'm sure that they're you know friends of friends who get people tickets. But so just to backpedal a little bit, some of the talk has been of late, you know, whether or not E3 matters. Like, do we even need E3? And I think if you've never been to E3, that might make it a little harder to understand its purpose and kind of place. But E3 is all about spectacle. So you come into the convention center and there's these monumental displays in front of you. Uh, I believe one of the years I went, I think it was one world was coming out. They had uh, one of the monsters in the main lobby, I think. Uh, I know that when Nitro Kart was coming out for Crash Bandicoot, they had carts set up. Uh, Activision had it right in the lobby. Dark Souls had a display at one point, and I think that was the one where it was a fountain of blood. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so it's just, it's all these interesting things that you see. So maybe, I don't know, like, maybe for those who don't know or don't really think about or realize. So E3 is a media event. And the idea is that you're pumping up the media so that the media then in turn is pumped up and goes to talk to their readers and get them excited. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, E3 is very fascinating because you're surrounded by quote unquote professionals, but you're all basically like kids enjoying what is being put on in front of you, this show. And... Once you get into the main show floor, there's like this center hall that connects two larger exhibition halls. I'm going to forget the sides. I'm not even going to bother trying to name them. All I know is that Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft are in one. And then the other one is more of the third parties. It it doesn't matter which side you're on. They're all cool. Again, it's, it's sort of like when you come into the main lobby where you have these different displays. The Nintendo's booth is always incredibly elaborate. And then Sony and Microsoft, when they would bother to go onto the show floor, <laughs> they they had they have cool booth, booths too, but they're less about the kind of I kind of re- relate it to Disneyland. Like the year that Mario Odyssey came out, Nintendo turned their booth into New Donk City, and I can't think of anybody doing anything that is similar from the other two you know main hardware people. Mm-hmm. And Nintendo's always got the largest draw. Even the year that Nintendo did only Breath of the Wild, that was still the biggest draw at the show. Well, that doesn't surprise me at all. It was fascinating because I remember that year, Nintendo was like, we're only going to show Breath of the Wild. We hadn't seen Switch yet, so you didn't even know the Switch version existed. You just knew it was this Wii U Zelda game. And man, they took the whole booth and they turned it into Hyrule. They had statues of all the characters and the monsters. They had a big cooking pot. And just all these Wii U kiosks set up with Breath of the Wild. And people stood in line for hours to play. 
that's to me is what makes E3 so magical is that you have these cool displays, these moments of playing games that haven't yet been either revealed or actually touched yet by anyone. And it's just incredibly fun. Now, in terms of like fans and how that translates to them, like I said, as a kid, I felt the hype. Like now, part of that is Nintendo Power was very much Nintendo's propaganda <laughs> sure. mouthpiece, but it was still just super cool because it felt like you were getting a look into this this unique club that you wouldn't be able to be a part of, but having media members describe it to you, you got to feel a little bit like you were. Yeah, I don't know if if the industry needs E3. Certainly, there are other ways to get the news out there, get people hyped, but kind of separate of whether it's technically necessary it is it is cool to have that opportunity for spectacle like i don't know if nintendo needed to make the wizard to make super mario brothers 3 a success but it's still like a like a really cool strange artifact and it's worth appreciating for that well yeah because like nintendo nintendo land or whatever nintendo world and in japan is just open but there have been other attempts at kind of mixing video games and theme parks like i think poke poke park was a thing that was temporary at one point okay but the spectacle you know the giant statues and the displays like where else are you gonna really see those or find those you don't have a theme park that you can go to you know again prior to nintendo world um that you can go to for those things and so it's really cool and almost unprecedented being able to go to a show like e3 or you know i went to pax west and Mm -hmm. Um, 2017, uh, and being able to see that, it, that, that level of spectacle. And so even if there are different ways to, to get the news out and the news, and that's, that has been the case for a while, it's not really just about that. Yeah. I remember when Nintendo went against the grain and they said, we're not going to do a traditional display or a presentation at E3 like on the, the in the Kodak theater or whatever. There was controversy and that's when that was the first year they did their direct broadcast for E3. I always looked at it like, well, Nintendo understands that in this day and age, at the time Reggie would have been the one in charge, you know, their their front man, Reggie could have said, "I'm going to go post up in an Arco bathroom stall and you can ask me questions while I'm using the bathroom through the door and I'll answer them." And he could have announced every single game from an Arco bathroom and everybody on the planet would have heard the news because there would have been 20 reporters stuffed into that bathroom to hear him talk about those games. So it's like in terms of just pure pragmatic dissemination of information, the web makes it easy. I mean, in basketball and football and in major sports, they've talked about how Back in the day, if you really wanted to get your name out there, your quote-unquote brand, well, you'd have to go to a city that was a major media center. So you'd have to wind up in New York or Los Angeles. But as the internet has kind of broken down barriers of space because of just the way technology is everywhere, and you can have your phone everywhere and the internet everywhere, um, that's not the case anymore. You could play in Memphis or Portland and still be a superstar. And it's sort of the same with getting your news out there. If you are EA and you have a press announcement to make, you don't have to do it from a theater. You can do it from anywhere, and the news is going to grab it, run with it, and get it out to people. The existence of Nintendo Directs and other things like that 
in addition to the uh, increased prominence of other shows like Tokyo Game Show or Gamescom, it's kind of taken the wind out of E3 sales a bit, even before they skipped having a show last year. And do you think maybe that, like, Nintendo kind of stepping away, defecting from the status quo to be like, you know, we don't actually need to do a presentation, got the ball rolling on, not the, not the death of E3, I don't want to be cataclysmic here, but on reducing the stature of E3 a little. I think that, I think it did, it was definitely the start of everything, because now you have Sony basically, I don't think Sony had a presence at all at E3, the last physical show, if I'm remembering correctly. There was some something like that. Yeah. Sony in particular, I think, was just like, we're not showing up. Uh, I know Microsoft, they abstained from being on the main show floor. They had rented their own theater that was like right next door, basically. And they had the whole Xbox, whatever, some kind of Xbox experience. It just boils down to like realizing that, or for the, the for the industry and these companies realizing, you know, we can generate hype without having to engage traditionally. I mean, GDC is another show, uh, Game Developers Conference, that happens in San Francisco each year. And I've been to that a few times now. And one thing I've seen is developers who are like yeah we can't afford to rent space in the main show floor so we'll get a hotel room and i can't tell you how many appointments i've had at gdc where they're like meet us at this hotel in this room and then you can come play a game you know it's interesting that actually reminds me of i don't think either of you have ever seen halt and catch fire it was a show on AMC from... I watched a little bit okay. of it over your shoulder. Yeah, yeah. Kind of <laughs> kind of tapped out. Kind of bored with it. <laughs> um, but it's supposed to be about... I think it's called Silicon Prairie back when there were more tech companies in Texas, like around the early mm-hmm. 80s. Mm-hmm. And one of the... Kind of the pivotal, like, climactic moment of the first season, which has to do with the development of early, uh, like, laptop or notebook or however you want to call it, computers, mm-hmm. portable computers, was... I don't know if it was CES, but it, like it was some kind of like mm-hmm. tech expo. But um, there were like side meetings in hotel rooms where they yeah. like demoed like the first MacBook or things like that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I mean, even E3 was similar. Activision had a hotel room, and that's where we went in to play uh, Crash Nitro Kart. Yeah. When I did PAX West, there were things happening in some sort of some building across the street. I, I, mm-hmm. I just, I remember, I don't know why that seems like so long ago now, but um, yeah, PAX West was interesting for me because I was there in a slightly different capacity. Um, I was media because I was working for a PR firm at the time, and um, I was there representing the Voxel agents who developed the Gardens Between. And so it was interesting because, you know, PAX has this uh, whole wing on the show floor for indie games. And that's where I was. Um, and, but this is, uh, it's at the same show where the big three are at, you know, um, Microsoft, Sony and Nintendo all had a presence too. Um, you know, and then you had like third party devs and, you know, Devolver games was there. And, um, it was an interesting experience because from the perspective of working it, uh, you know, I'm standing in this teeny tiny little booth because the all the indie developers were smushed together and you had these this very small booth space. But even with the, the small amount of space that each dev was allotted, people went all out, you know, decorating. And um, God, there was this game called I think it was called Pikarusu. 
Um, I don't even know what it was. Uh, I just remember they were they were handing out pins left and right and you know, giving you a, a bunch <laughs> of pins and you could collect them all, you know, throughout the two or three days of the show. But that particular booth, it drew such a huge crowd on the indie side. And it was so interesting seeing people playing this game. It's weird and it's quirky, but it's drawing all of this attention. And like, yeah, you can go see the spectacle of Nintendo, which had an amazing presence. Unless I'm misremembering that correctly, but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I remember seeing Nintendo at the show. Or, you know, you could go have fun with all these people playing this weirdo, quirky indie game. Uh, I mean, they had a good booth. They had a more impressive booth than a lot of the other indie devs. But, you know, I, I was standing in for two for two of the people from the voxel agents mm-hmm. when keep things anonymous uh but you know certain big wigs from certain developers were coming over and wanting to have meetings with the voxel agents about you know putting their game on their their platforms yeah so it was interesting seeing that sort of those business exchanges and and then i was handling appointments for video games journalists and people who I actually recognized, uh, a couple of them who, you know, I would give them the media kits, which was just a flash drive with a bunch of uh, media for the game and stuff and mm-hmm. watching them uh, play test the game. And they each had like half an hour appointments. And so that was fascinating. And then when I would get time to actually watch walk the show flow show floor, especially during my lunch breaks, um, just seeing, you know, people getting excited and different activities going on or different tournaments happening. Then there were vendors who were just, they were selling stuff like plushies and artists who, who were there. Oh, the guy's name is on the tip of my tongue. He's like, a, I think a Capcom artist. He was there and I was like watching him draw right in front of me. Was but, it Shinkiro? No, I think it started with a C, like, like not Champ. Chamba? Chamba. Yeah, I think Jeffrey Cruz. I think it's his name. I think it was Chamba. I think I think pronouncing all of it. It was something like that. He he was drawing and and Jeffrey Chamba Cruz. I think it was however you say it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was him. I believe he was he was there uh, and watching him draw. And then of course that's where I discovered Ruiner. They were in the Devolver booth and that blew my mind. And the one indie game you love. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. and uh, like I said, the big three, they, they, they were all interesting. But one of the most interesting experiences I had, I was on my lunch break one of the days and I was in one of the local or the, the cafes in the event center. And there was like a, a Lord of the Rings game that was coming out, something like Battle for Middle Earth or something like that. And th- these uh, dudes dressed as orcs, I think, came in and were like <laughs> messing with people and like doing this just kind of random, you know, off the cuff, uh, just kind of skit, so to speak. But they were just filming these guys dressed as orcs, just messing with people, just sitting at the counter eating lunch. And so it was interesting, just the whole experience. But I I think, again, like, it's not just about getting the news out. Mm -hmm. It's about the experience of getting together with other people in the industry who are usually fans themselves, gamers themselves, and, um... Well, I think it's a, it's really more multifaceted than a lot of the kind of mainstream gaming media has made it because the popular quote unquote hot take has been E3 is dead. There's no point to it anymore. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot about it. And by E3, really, it, it, you can kind of make the argument of any convention. But I run Nintendo, Joe, as has been said before. 
in my experience running the site, one thing that's fascinating is that you're getting emails from people you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. All these little tiny devs, all these different studios, sometimes big studios, sometimes mid-range studios, or, just countless emails. Or people like me <laughs> when I worked for the PR firm. We would PR be, people. We would well, be I mean, emailing. That's, part, that's who it is, yep. but still. The point is that the, the PR rep is either for somebody small, somebody big, somebody you've never heard of, mm-hmm. and so on. And, you know, I'm sitting there and I only have so many people who write for me. I only have so much time and I have to kind of decide what is worth covering. And so a place like E3 is interesting because let's say I'm going to make up an example here. Let's just say that uh, Yacht Club Games is complete nobodies at the time and they email me about Shovel Knight. I might not see that email or I might see it and think, eh, it seems interesting. But let's say I go to E3 and Yacht Club has a booth and Shovel Knight's sitting there. And I'm like, man, I don't have two hours to wait to play whichever game. Oh, what's this? Shovel Knight. This looks interesting. And then I go play it. Well, that's one of the kind of unpredictable aspects of a convention like E3, where you're going to be exposed to things you might not otherwise be exposed to. Mm-hmm. And like, that's not all apples to apples in terms of some of the comparisons I'm making, like with the sports analogy I made, but... Uh, It's sort of like news, right? So if you are getting your news through social media or even something like Google, as things are more tailored for you, as your algorithm determines, well, this is what this person's interested in, so your content gets geared more specifically to that, you will miss certain things that you might not see otherwise, which is why if you are still one of the dinosaurs that gets a newspaper... The newspaper is not tailoring anything to you. It's here's all the news stuffed into these however many pages. And you're going to stumble across stuff that you might not otherwise see. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of what being at these shows is like. I mean, for one thing, even if you allow the public to go to conventions and like in the case of E3, that is now the case. You can spend money and just regular people can go. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day... Yes, social media word of mouth is important and people discover things through it, but media outlets are still pretty integral to getting the word out there about different things. And so as a media person, it is interesting going to an event versus just getting an email about it. I mean, even when it's not E3, companies like Namco have invited me out to San Francisco and again, hotels, you know. Not In this case, it wasn't a hotel room. They were in a conference hall in a hotel in San Francisco. And they had all this delicious food out. They had multiple stations with different games that were coming out. And they were like, you just go ahead and play whatever you want. Write your impressions. Yeah, I went to one for X-Seed in a hotel. And, I mean, there is, you know, a little bit of that risk of like, well, maybe I'm just being pumped up because they filled me with food. And now (laughs) I feel more excited about what I'm playing. Well, they wouldn't fill you with food if they didn't have some kind of effect. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it's still just... uh, By your own nachos. (laughs) I think people are underselling just how how much comes from the show as opposed to just the news. You know, it's coloring perceptions, yes, but interactions you might not normally see. I mean, a lot of the people who take the time to go to something like E3, these are like incredibly important executive type of people or creative types like producers and directors and developers who might normally never be in the same space together. Mm -hmm. But because you go through the time and trouble to create an E3, all of a sudden they're there 
and maybe a new game pops up because these people were talking and they normally wouldn't have been. Or and, even yeah. just having that exposure to people you would never probably ever have exposure to again. I mean, I was talking to, uh, I can't remember what exactly what her role was in the game, nor can I remember her name, but when I was at the Ruiner booth and, um, you know, my coworker and I were talking to her about Ruiner and she's, she, she's like a pretty, uh, prominent part of the development team. Rikon Games, like, when am I ever going to get to sit down and talk to face to face someone from Rikon Games? But I was, you know, or chatting up people with Yacht Club Games. I remember I was in their booth and I was talking to to people there. Or I believe, if I'm not mistaken, because I can't remember where else I would have experienced this. I'm pretty sure this happened at PAX West. Um, there was a Pokémon tournament. Tournament. <laughs> uh, because... Pokemon Tournament DX for Switch was just about to come out. I think like just a couple of days after the show. Uh, and so there were actual, you could sit, there were like tournaments happening and you could play with people. And I remember the the Microsoft booth, because I was really motivated by the the free swag, like the pins and the keychains yeah. and collectibles and stuff. And so like in the Microsoft booth, you could go, all you had to do was just go through the process of designing your own custom controller. I believe mm-hmm. like your own custom like Xbox One controller or whatever. Do you remember what colors you went through? No, I wish I could remember what color I made. But I'll tell you, it was red and black. <laughs> <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, so long as you did it, they would give you a, a really nice like um, uh, pin of like really nice quality uh, that was shaped like a, a controller. And they were just like, no, just just go through and I'll give you the pin. I and, do think yeah. it's definitely the case. You're talking about like things that these show floors provide that you don't otherwise get. It is definitely the case that some games have made it because, if not not necessarily Shovel Knight specifically, but there are games that have made it. That's a fake example. I know. I understand. I understand. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not calling you out, man. Um, but that wouldn't have made it if they hadn't been seen by the right person mm-hmm. on a show floor. Whether that's because it caught a journalist's eye and they ended up doing a write-up about it or it cost uh, caught some executive's eye and it got you know more a more prominent position on a platform than it would otherwise have gotten mm-hmm. yeah because like i said there were executives from big yeah. companies that were they were walking the indie corner you know, yeah. the, the indie booth and we also can't forget peripherals too yeah like i mean for one thing something like we like that would not be easy to grasp without somebody being there and actually you know waggling the controller mm-hmm. but even companies like hori um power a nico they have booths at e3 and i've gone and went hands-on with controllers that they were putting out and things like that and now this all once more it still kind of boils down to semantics right it's like well you could do that you don't have to be at e3 you know they can invite you to this or invite you to that but i think the industry because the media is not the same as the industry, right? The media covers the industry. But the industry itself, I think internally, they all, at least I feel like, probably understand why there is still value to E3. I mean, for one thing, that logistical part of it that I mentioned, the idea that you're going to have everybody in one place at the same time. It's sort of like, think of your family, right? Like, your family shows up for Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever, it's hard to get everybody together in one place at one time. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with the industry. It's like, you know, you're going to have all these people from all these different developers and companies show up together at once. So, for example, Nyko, Hori, PDP, whoever, they all have these different things they want me to see. Well, if they are just individually 
randomly asking me to show up somewhere in San Francisco to come check out their controller. It's all going to be on different days at different times, and maybe I can't show up to one of them. But if they're all at E3 and they're just like, hey, here's my booth, and if you just swing by, you can check out this controller and that controller, that creates a better chance of your product being covered and talked about by the media. Sure. If, you're, uh, if your second cousin asks you to come out to visit them, you probably wouldn't get around to it. <laughs> but if there's a family reunion, you're going to get to see all your second cousins. Yeah, I think the analogy, using the analogy of family, um, is an interesting one, but it, it does kind of work because there are people who expect to see each other year after year at these shows because they're not going to see each other. They don't see each other um, throughout the rest of the year. They might email if they have any contact, maybe call, but otherwise it's like, yeah, I'll see you next year at the show. There were people like that at PAX West too, you know, like hearing them say like, oh, it's nice to see you again. You know, clearly they were going every year for whatever reason. Yeah. There's even, I mean, even stuff like G Fuel. I'm pretty sure G Fuel was the last E3 I went to. What the devil is G Fuel? And you wouldn't know. Without mm. E3. <laughs> They're basically... I, I know, because of GameStop. <laughs> yep, G Fuel is basically a powdered energy drink oh designed God, for is, gamers. Yeah. Oh and God, I'm not going to be able to taste this if I don't go. Why? <laughs> there... Why does this exist? Yeah. G Fuel is actually pretty good. Plug, plug. You want to sponsor us, let us know. Yeah, whatever. You drink Crystal Light and Kool-Aid. It's, it's tasty, <laughs> What's wrong okay? With Kool-Aid? Yeah, yeah, just jealous. Kool-Aid's great. But, uh, I mean, I think... Because... I keep coming back to this idea of you can do the same thing with less effort. You know, I can give you the news through the bathroom stall if I'm Reggie. Or I can put together a whole elaborate Nintendo Direct and have a booth in, you know, the Los Angeles Convention Center. I I mean, we talked about this either the last podcast or the podcast before it, but just sort of the idea of, well, you can have every single thing shipped to your house and never leave it. And do it that way. Mm-hmm. And what's the difference? You got your food, you got your pair of pants, or you can drag your ass to the mall and actually go look for your pants in a store, or you can go to a restaurant to eat. Mm-hmm. And again, this is all, you know, COVID notwithstanding. I understand that part of it, but just this is a trend that's been happening since before COVID. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with E3, it's like, you know, can you do this in a cheaper way, a simpler way? Sure. But why live life without any flavor? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're. You are in an industry that eclipses Hollywood in terms of the amount of money that you draw. I think yeah. without any flavor is, is a bit of a unsupportable hyperbole. <laughs> but I, I take your point. Like there, there is something lost when you don't gather, when you don't make the time for events, etc. Mm-hmm. That's definitely true. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have an E3 related question. We could at some point talk about things other than E3, but I'm not ready for that. I have an E3 related question. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, which is like more from like the audience perspective. Like Robert, before you started going to E3, and certainly for for me this whole time, like my experience with E3 has been like there's a there's a big news drop or E3 happens and then all the magazines are featuring whatever whatever it was that was mm-hmm. big. At E3, right? And there's some amount of anticipation or excitement. How how acutely do you remember, like, your biggest moments of excitement? Because, like, for me, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of, like, when E3 made the biggest impact on me. Mm. And I think what stands out the most is the, like, the era of Nintendo where they were uh, coming out with the DS and the Wii. Mm. It felt like there were these, like, huge kind of, like, revolutionary new new things that I... 
I just wanted, I was like clicking around trying to find every little morsel of information and just getting really hyped up for, for those particular things. But yeah, I'm curious for both of you, if, if there's like particularly like E3 news or E3 conferences that really stand out for you. Yes. And so what? Yes. Uh, for me, it, it was Twilight Princess. <laughs> uh, when they announced Twilight Princess, I still remember talking to Robert in the car about um, Link's new look and telling him I wasn't sure about the chainmail. I was like, oh, I don't know if I like the chainmail or not, right. which uh, I eventually ended up loving. I think Twilight Princess Link is the second best design after Adult Link and Ocarina. Something, something, his nose. <laughs> In the game, yeah. Tomato yeah, in the game, and the drawings looks great, but um, no. But that whole announcement was insane. It was crazy. I mean, they talk about how and like on the show floor when they announced it, grown men crying, like just like openly, <laughs> like openly weeping. And I just think that that's amazing. It's and like and Toon Link killed their family. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's funny is sometimes just just because I love it so much, I will just. Uh, randomly pull up that reveal video on YouTube. You know, Shigeru Miyamoto comes out and they were like, it's something along the lines of like, you know, we have one last thing we want to show you. Mm-hmm. And like the, <laughs> it's like the Conan the Barbarian theme song, I think is what they set that trailer to. And, uh, you know, it, you, you, it, and especially too, following, following on the heels of Wind Waker, you know, and, and the, um, you know, the beautiful cell shaded look. And then you're looking at this at the time, you know, hyper realistic trailer. I don't know if anyone in in the crowd immediately thought this is Zelda because you you have that rider way in the distance, tiny little person in the distance. And, and then, you know, like as he gets closer and closer, they reveal that it's Link and then the crowd just explodes, just like people screaming and cheering. And, and, and I remember feeling that, that excitement when that was announced. Yeah. And yeah. It was big. Yeah. Uh, for me, the Twilight Princess one is pretty impactful. I'm not sure if there's any like one specific E3 where I remember. Well, I guess the E3 where Donkey Kong Country Returns got announced for mm. Wii. Mm. I remember that year just being packed with all sorts of games because we had that period where everyone was like Nintendo was abandoned its core audience and they were obsessed with like the Wii Sports style Mm -hmm. games. And I mean, that was kind of true to an extent because there was a little bit of a drought of like the quote unquote hardcore games. But that E3, Nintendo clearly just was not wanting to hear that anymore. And they were like, here's everything you could ever want (laughs) outside of a new F-Zero. And that E3 was packed. But that's a more modern one. In terms of older ones... I mean, Ocarina of Time, that was a big deal when that started showing up. I don't know. I guess I'm useless for an answer for this one. I can't think well, of a specific okay. E3. I just remember, though, that each year with E3, it was like all these games you didn't know about and seeing the coverage of it in the magazines was just so tantalizing. I, I do remember prior to the release of, of Breath of the Wild, um, even though that ended up not being my favorite Zelda, the Nintendo Treehouse Mm-hmm. Because there was like the Nintendo Direct and then the Treehouse following the the Direct during E3. And I remember because they, they would show some gameplay and then they would cut to another game and then they'd show more gameplay. And I remember just sitting there glued to my phone 
um, waiting for more gameplay. Um, yeah, that that one sticks out in my mind. I was definitely excited for Breath of the Wild too. I I don't I don't know. If there's a particular like single single event or point of news that got me super hyped for that one. Oh, actually, I remember seeing seeing that vista uh, that was like clearly a reference to the original Legend of Zelda. You know, mm-hmm. like on, like on the plateau looking out yeah. at all of Hyrule, kind of like. I mean, because you know how I feel about the original Zelda, uh-huh. and, and so like that was like the, the the signal of like, oh my god, yeah, they haven't forgotten the good Zelda. Oh my god. <laughs> well, you know, E three is. I just think it's this special place of just different types of people all congregating together, and that first year when they let all the fans in, they did it wrong. Oh my god, it was hard to get food. It was it was just so stuffed feeling. But then the second year after fans started to come in, they figured it out a little better. And it was kind of cool seeing just normal fans able to enjoy all the games being on display. I think that may... I mean, you know, you can't ignore the evolution of technology and the impact that it has on how we disseminate information and blah, blah, blah. So it's probably necessary for E3 to evolve and kind of grow. And maybe letting fans in is a good way of, you know, you continue to have the media show up, but also allowing for that word of mouth on social media that's just kind of integral now to uh, spreading hype. And it was just cool seeing regular people who are, they've never been to E3 before, and they're seeing, whoa, this is what they do every year. It's like, yeah, you know, every year they transform these spaces that it's just a giant empty hall, but... All of a sudden, you have these different developers who show up with, like, Sega had uh, Sonic's car from the Sonic Racing games. And you can actually sit, and it was like a little replica of the car. And, you know, the swag, which Zach is not appreciative of, but the swag is pretty cool. I'm not uh, I'm not <laughs> completely against swag. I'm against swag for swag's sake. But I, I remember having, um, uh, when Phoenix Wright came out on the DS, they they came out with, like, this special stylus that was, like, a Yep, I have the that the finger pointer, pointer, pointer. Yep, yeah. and then there was like a little. It was supposed to be like a like a screen cleaner or something mm-hmm. that said objection. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I had those. Yeah, I think because Capcom made too much swag, and so if you bought Phoenix Wright directly from their website, they shipped those with them. Yeah. The point is, I'm not an absolutist <laughs> when it comes to to swag. It just has to be has to clear a certain bar. It's not as automatic a process as it seems to be for certain brands for Mm. the two of you. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, branching uh, into the other part of what the podcast is supposed to be, which is hype building, because it's all kind of connected, right? Yeah. When you guys are asking, when you were asking me about favorite E3 just now, my brain, of course, went to something not E3. And I remembered the VHS tapes that Nintendo would send out. I was going to bring that up, yeah. So I think one of the things that was really special about hype building before the internet as we know it now, and every time I say this, that I explain it in the podcast, but when I think of before the internet as we know it now, I mean before we had web-enabled phones and before we had social media. Because I know that there were people who were online in 1995 in chat rooms or whatever, posting on a wall somewhere but when you were you know in the early 90s mid 90s even into the kind of the late 90s most of us most of us especially middle class kind of people were not online so you depended on getting nintendo power or egm or game pro or whatever to get your news and so when e3 news would show up 
it felt really special because it was like, you know, you have the kind of standard coverage each month and then here's E3 and all these bombshell reviews come at, or uh, these bombshell news stories come at you. But even when E3 wasn't going on, there were different things that would happen to build hype and Nintendo, through Nintendo Power, would send you VHS tapes that had footage of games that were coming out. And I think my absolute favorite tape that I was able to get, because I didn't get very many, because they stopped doing it around the time that we were reading Nintendo Power, but that Banjo-Kazooie VHS tape, mm. oh my god, because now it's, it's harder for today's fans because everything's HD and spectacular looking, but think what you will of Rare's gameplay, which I personally love, but the way Banjo-Kazooie looked, that was amazing at the time. Like, Mario 64 has its charms, but Banjo-Kazooie showed up and was like, we're going to do what Mario does and look 10 times better. And that VHS tape was mesmerizing. Like, the gameplay just looked like nothing I'd ever seen up to that point. What is with that look, Zach? Yeah, Zach's smirking. Yeah. He's got something to say. Um, something mean. Mm-hmm. There's something to be desired when it comes to Rare's character designs from... <laughs> oh, my God. What is your problem with Mumbo Jumbo? Yeah. The answer is that there's no problem with Mumbo Jumbo. That is Jumbo not yeah. my answer. Um, <laughs> what, what, you're, what, you're offended that Banjo's not wearing a shirt? He's no, just wearing I'm not shorts? offended that Banjo's not wearing a shirt. Um, I, I really just do not get the appeal of Rare's character designs pretty much across the board. It depends on what designs you're talking about, but there are some really good ones. I'm going to say straight up. No game. I don't care what generation since N64. No game has topped the water droplets in Banjo-Kazooie. So when you swim and there's the little drips in the water, no game has come close to that level of detail. Do you think maybe this is like some some weird nostalgia talking? Can you can you consider for a moment that if you're if you're telling me that an N64 game has better water effects, <laughs> That water effect in particular, of course, it was expanded upon in Banjo-Tooie when the water, the surface of the water was wavy, and then there was the little splashes in it. You know, oh, let me wow. Let me just extend the offer to, like, edit this out to avoid you embarrassing yourself. Oh I am a man that. who owns every console, but for, you know, like a Neo Geo or whatever, every kind of main system I own. And I've seen quite a few impressive games, and I've seen water in games that has impressed me, but man... The droplets in Banjo Kazooie, yet to be topped. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn to Angela here because Angela, no matter what game is being played, if there's water on screen, she will comment on its quality. So I know she's paying attention, and I also know that she, in her formative years, did get to see and experience <laughs> Banjo Kazooie. Yes. So, Angela, mm -hmm. feel free to expand on this any way you like. But uh, fundamentally, the question I need answered is does Banjo-Kazooie, in fact, have the most impressive water effects of any video game ever? No, but the water droplets, I understand Robert's appreciation for that. <laughs> hey, and I'm specifically saying the water droplets. You know, like the water in Twilight Princess, wow. The water in Mario Sunshine, double wow. But those little droplets. He's still talking about, like, 15-year-old games, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You show me a game that has better water than Mario Sunshine. I, I, dare I you. can turn on Assassin's Creed Origins right now. 
Probably has that some boring algorithm generated blah blah blah. Well, yeah, it was really nice in Ghost of Tsushima. Yeah, the water's really nice in Ghost of Tsushima. Anyway, we're talking hype, thank you. So back to the VHS tapes. Oh. The <laughs> having those sent to your house just it I don't know how to describe it. Like I think part of it is also just being a kid. But it felt like you were getting top secret information or something. Like, it felt like you were being offered this portal into a secret world. Well, yeah, because <laughs> I remember thinking how exclusive E3 felt. I remember thinking, like, how how, how can I get to E3? How would I ever be able to get to E3? And I have just, uh, unfortunately, E3 has always coincided with just times I couldn't go since I've been um writing for nintendo joe but even like at a you know making it to pax west i mean it, it felt like it has a very similar feel and setup and so it just kind of felt like wow like i'm right here on the show floor with people from nintendo and people from the big three and and i remember too like the after parties even that felt like wow like this is stuff that i've heard about um uh or seen you know in the past and and now i'm actually participating in it like i we went to a we got invited to an invite only show from ign and it was also celebrating whatever anniversary at the time it was of bioshock maybe like 10 years or something like that and so it was a themed party and so it had um uh you know decor giant statues of of um some of the characters and enemies, yeah, there was a big daddy there, and um, what were they called? Little sisters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a while since I played, but um, yeah, so they were there, and you know, it was kind of um, supposed to be kind of like a period set, you know, like period inspired um, sure. party, mm -hmm. and like the music and everything, and and so that that felt really cool, but, like being at this exclusive, you know, IGN invite only party, and and uh, you know, talking to people that were big and like like the smash competitive scene who were there mm. and stuff like that. Just like people who, again, it's like, when would I, when would I ever know these people? Unless I got really good. Uh, I mean, got better <laughs> at smash and was suddenly part of the competitive smash community. Like, you know, or I was writing for IGN or something like that. Yeah. My greatest E3 celebrity interaction was meeting Charles Martinet. Oh, that's pretty the cool. The voice of Super Mario himself. Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing it. I think that's how you say it. So Could be. It I was, think he's Canadian. It was the New Donk City year. So Odyssey had just come out. This was pre-COVID, so forgive me for being a heathen. But I was sick as a dog. <laughs> My throat was on fire. Pretty sure I had a fever. I think it like it had developed as I was going to the show. Mm. So I'm like on the, the bus and then the train dying. Like, I get no, to no e no real choice to turn back. <laughs> get to E3, still dying, but I'm like, I'm going to power through it. So I'm walking, and this is like the show just started, and I'm entering Nintendo's booth, and this giant crowd of people is like kind of coming at me, and I'm sort of pushed to the wall, and then I turn to my right, and there's Charles Martinet just standing in front of me, and you recognize him the second you see his face. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my God, Mario's in front of me. <laughs> And so he sees me and he's like, he smiles and I, like, I shook his hand and I said, hi, you know, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, whatever. And this just, the show had just started. So I had nothing to give him to sign. Mm -hmm. I happened to have a Sharpie with me and I was like, what the hell can I give him? So I gave him my E3 badge. It wasn't the actual part that has your name on it. It was 
each each year a company will put like some kind of insert into the badges at mm-hmm. E3. So whatever the insert was it was some Sega thing. I just I had to sign it. So mm-hmm. I got his signature. Mm-hmm. And that was that was pretty awesome. I don't think I've ever met any other celebrities at E3. I think it was I think having celebrities well, I know they still show up, but I mean that's another part not to go back to E3, but that's another part of the hype building is having the celebrities who kind of show up as mm-hmm. well because it's like, well, if you have freaking whoever, you know, okay, some cool. famous person come and play a game and then they talk about I mean, it. Like, look at Keanu, right? Look how much buzz that generated. Yeah. yeah. Him showing up. Oh, yeah. yeah. Quick uh, fact check. It is, in fact, Martinet. Oh, oh um, He is of French descent and went to UC Berkeley. Oh, did he? Huh. Almost like someone we know. Almost like. To go back to the videotapes for a second, speaking as someone who did have some form of internet earlier i didn't have like you know america online uh we had prodigy before we had proper mm-hmm. internet mm-hmm. and uh i remember like spending time on message boards and so forth and you could get information there that you wouldn't get otherwise but even back at that time those other people on those message board it's not like they had uh a direct conduit to like inside information it's all mm-hmm. still just secondhand of like people getting their newest copy of egm or whatever so it was still like even for a household that had internet those videotapes were still special yeah i i, I remember i really I, I got a couple of them i don't remember what one of them was that i know one of them was a uh, donkey kong country though mm-hmm. when they were promoting that i'd love to have that mm-hmm. one yeah i think i have Star Fox 64 banjo kazooie and man there might have been a diddy kong racing one i can't remember those are the three that stand out there were, we had three i swear i thought we got um like a dvd or something with the twilight princess trailer i know we got a, a cd we got a couple music cds in nintendo power you know, one for yeah, twilight princess and, cool. and one for the smash bros symphony but uh smash melee smash Bros. melee but i i swear i thought we had gotten a trailer a trailer dvd huh. for twilight princess but maybe i don't I'm wrong. remember that myself it's yeah. interesting how like going back to like the early 90s how in the dark we were you know like the the super nintendo came out in the u.s like i think late 1991 and i don't think nintendo power even talked about it at all until like mid 1991 like on because like my only source of information for this stuff more or less was nintendo power it was only when nintendo started like like deciding when and how they wanted to market it and introduce it that i even found out this was going to be a thing and that's just that's so different from you know people now have like understandings of what like when's the next console coming out but at that point like i don't even know that i knew like at age 10 or 11 that next console was a thing that was going to happen Mm -hmm. you know i kind of wonder what is you know quote unquote better i mean i remember the other day uh Sakurai and Masahiro Sakurai for mm-hmm. Smash Bros. He had posted he had posted something. I don't remember what it was, but it was in his house. And somebody had zoomed in on some portion of the photo and said, if you look, you can see his cat. Fucking and weirdo. Yeah, and I'm just like, <laughs> so we've gone from like what Zach's talking about with, you know, it's 92 and Nintendo Power is barely starting to talk about Super Nintendo being out mm-hmm. to... 2021 and you have maniacs who are zooming in on photos looking for details or like Mm -hmm. god bless you i'm not judging you but like data miners who go into an update Mm -hmm. and pull this and that and say looks like this is coming this and this and it's just like 
you know, you've gone from like knowing maybe nothing to knowing just like, I don't give a crap that you can see his cat. And it's like, it's just the like data mining and, and, and stuff and constant leaks. It just, it's those I question a little bit uh, leak in quotation yeah, marks I say but it just spoils the fun and, and it's just like I can I can wait you. you know I I am a patient <laughs> person and I know not everybody likes surprises and whatever but I just I feel like this is I think it's a, a symptom of a greater problem of this society we're living in we live in a society but the society that we live in um you know where instant gratification and um, no patience, um, no real appreciation for like the slow craft of things. It's just now, now, now. And, and so the, that buildup and that hype. And I mean, like there's, there truly is something special about those moments. I mean, the, the twilight princess reveal, like you would not have had grown men crying in, in the crowd if they knew it was coming. They, it just wouldn't have happened. And, and it's, it's just such a special thing to have these surprises and have these these sudden uh, uh, announcements and, and things that just come out of nowhere and it just feels so lame and so I, I can't even find the right word to describe it where it's just like you know it's coming we could unplug to some degree and choose not to which doesn't mean it doesn't suck you know but mm -hmm. like it's it's hard not to pay attention to it in, in the case of the Sakurai cat thing, I almost want to blame uh, Phil Spencer for that. Do you remember, like, when the when the Xbox uh, Series X got announced, people realized that Phil Spencer had had, like, an Xbox Series X, like, on display on his bookshelf in the background, and just mm -hmm. nobody noticed or knew what it was? Was it the X or the S? <laughs> Might have been the S. It was one of the yeah. two of them. It was just That's in plain funny. sight. Nobody knew. Yeah. I mean, it's... And then don't get me wrong. I mean... That's kind of fun, but it's also intentional, right? Like, you know he knew it was back there. Yeah. And, like, after the fact, somebody's going to realize. But when it starts getting into the cat thing, and to me, it's, like, I, I feel this way about a lot of things. It's, like, kind of everything in moderation, right? So it's, like, maybe not knowing nothing. I mean, there. I think I'd prefer going back to that, like, mm -hmm. the era of my childhood where video game information, the how it was sent out at that point, but... To the extreme of how it is now, where it's it's like entitlement in a way. Yes. Like, you know, like, I, I need to get this. I'm You know, you have to give me this information. Mm -hmm. You almost kind of see it with Nintendo Directs. Now, believe me, I've complained when Nintendo has gone hella long without giving an update about projects that they're working on. But at the same time, it's like, you know... Every time Nintendo does a Direct, it's a big deal because they don't do them that often. Mm -hmm. Like, you wouldn't pay as much attention to them if they were more frequent. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, even Sony has kind of realized it, right, with their State of Play mm -hmm. broadcast that they've been doing. Now, I've actually not sat and watched a Sony State of Play. I don't know if it's as good as a Direct. No, they're just as boring as the Directs have been. <laughs> <laughs> Says you. But, Angela, back me up on this. Um, well, I mean, I think the directs are interesting, but I don't know if the state of plays are interesting. I don't think I've actually watched them. I think the only one I watched, I'm not sure if it was a state of play even. It was uh, um, when I was working for the PR firm. It was like a Sony Paris, some some sort of, I don't even remember what it was. Something having to do with like, like a Sony Paris thing. But we knew that um, the gardens between was mm -hmm. going to be announced. And I think that may have been 
the announcement that it was coming to PlayStation. Regardless, that was big for us, and so we, we had we made sure to tune in. Yeah. But that's the only kind of thing that I've watched from Sony like that. I don't know if I'd say entitlement. Certainly, there's an amount of some amount of conditioning there, right? Because part of the reason Nintendo or Sony, whoever like is putting on these shows, is they want us to be hyped up for whatever is going to be announced. So, if what they announce is boring, people are going to be a little bit out of shape about it. You know, um, it's not fair necessarily to expect there to be a, a, a new Smash announcement every time Nintendo opens their mouth, right? But like, there's a certain amount of expectation when an event like that happens that what is announced like what the event is for is going to be worth the event and so there can be some kind of like disappointment when that doesn't happen Mm -hmm. the other thing is like for both those cases like sony just came out with a new system last year Mm -hmm. there aren't that many exclusive games for it Mm -hmm. nintendo had a really strong lineup when the switch came out and they've kind of been coasting since Mm -hmm. then you know so like people are able to get away with it yeah so like what next Where's Metroid? If not Metroid, where's something? Right. So where's people are like, Bayonetta three. Doesn't or... have to be a direct. They just got. They yep. Just give me something here, are right? We so like, get that's... another Star Fox. Are we gonna get another F Zero? Well, we got Balan's Wonderland. I mean, yeah. what more do we need? I mean, yeah. You can yeah. call that entitlement, but like the whole premise of a games console is you're gonna have games that you're excited by that you can buy for it. Well, so what? if Nintendo's not delivering, is it really fair to call that entitlement if people well, are upset about it? That's not necessarily what I'm saying though. I'm talking about entitlement. Entitlement in the sense that like you're owed information and that you're owed it all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, this isn't your government. This is a private company (laughs) making entertainment products. So like, do you deserve some information because you bought their $500 piece of hardware? Sure. I mean, it's reasonable, but it's like this idea that like, you know, I need to just get everything right now. And once I get it right now, I need it again in a day. Well, I mean, look at, look uh, at like, Animal Crossing, right? I mean, you know, that is a game that is... We are, we already knew uh, Nintendo was going to drag that one out for years. Um, you know, you get new content every month, um, seasonal stuff, but people were already data mining it and trying to find what's coming down the pipeline. Oh, like I think, for example, I think someone found the code for Brewster in there. And it's like, that's cool. I do hope that they bring Brewster, but also this is this is not the game where... I really feel like you need to go data mining to see what's coming. Like, just let it happen and you get surprised by stuff and whatever. You know, it's just, again, this feeling of I need to know now. I need to know what's coming now. I will temper what I'm saying by pointing out that I am aware when I have contradictory views on things because I love TCRF.net, the cutting room floor. Mm -hmm. And all that is is data miners going into games and saying, hey, did you know that this is in here and this is Mm -hmm, in here? mm -hmm. Uh, The rare stuff with the ice key and the stop and swap, all that interests me. I think my problem is people. (laughs) Although, <laughs> like uh, just like annoying personalities online crying about things is where I start getting irritated. Didn't I mean like the stuff about Banjo Kazooie that you're talking about? I mean we didn't know that when the game came out or or before though, right? Like that all that all that information came out post the game's release. Yeah, no, but I'm saying like I'm complaining about data miners oh, you know, going in, but saying. I like data mining because I'll enjoy TCRF. But yeah, I'm just saying that. Well, you can you can not mind the tool and still have a negative opinion about how the tool is used Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right like you don't it doesn't have to be you're against data mining you're against or you're annoyed by data mining 
as a way to get information before a company is going to announce it, not information mm-hmm. that a company never announced. Yeah. And I don't I find think, that inconsistent. I think a lot of, I've seen people discussing leaks and stuff and, you know, how it impacts the, the state of hype that we used to be in and, you know, prevents a company from announcing its its own games when they're ready to do so. And a lot of people do have, um, I think the, the word entitled is a very good way to describe it, this very entitled mentality. And a lot of them are just kind of like, you know, anti-corporation, which I, I agree with to some extent, but it's basically just like, eh, they're a big, they're a big company, who cares? You know, mm-hmm. who, who what, what does it matter? They're still going to announce the game. People are still going to buy it. They're still going to get the sales, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just like, I don't, really care about that <laughs> I, I don't care that they're, they're, okay they're a big company and like i'm still it's still impacting your ability to enjoy you know the surprise and looking forward to something coming down the line and yeah like look at the nintendo leak from a few months back mm-hmm. where they got hold of this massive amount of data from nintendo and all i can kind of think as i'm looking at it is like okay it's cool seeing sprites that weren't used and whatever but it, I don't know, it's, it's, it speaks to sort of internet culture where it's like people have this idea that like you need to know every single little thing about everything and everyone. And it's like, you know, what if just for argument's sake, there was some email that was turned up in the data leak and somebody said something that someone found questionable 30 years later. It's like, and then that becomes a controversy. It's like, you know, I don't care. It's mm-hmm. like people's opinions and feelings are their own. If you choose to share them, then you share them. But, like, the way people want to just get into every little detail sometimes, just it starts going overboard. It's like, yeah. wow, you zoomed in on a photo <laughs> to stare at Sakurai's cat and tell people, I saw his cat. It's like, dude, get a hobby. Yep. Are the two of you familiar with the expression, uh, information wants to be free? Have you mm. heard that before? No. Um, I think it was a more common expression, um, Maybe in pre-social media days, I'm out of the timeline a little off. But the idea, like, there's a there's a kind of like, I don't know, there's a bit of a moral claim being made by people who say that, which is is like you should want to share information. Mm-hmm. But but a bigger part of it is like it is just the nature of information to be shared, to be distributed. If you have a network of a bunch of different people someone's going to discover a thing. It's going to get told to people. It's going to be told to other people. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of related to the idea, like, have you guys heard the expression, three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, it's just hard to keep information buttoned down. And the easier it is to convey information, the more people that know something, the more likely it is to just get out there. Well, yeah, I mean, look how, you know, game releases now will be um, discovered uh, for like through trademark registration, yeah. you know, or like something was listed on Amazon or, uh, you know, the Korean ratings board, you know, just rated blah. And like, I've reported on plenty of those stories myself, but again, it really is more of the advent of the internet and social media and e-commerce and different, different things that now again, kind of contributes to the, the, uh, spoiling of surprises. Well, kind of in the same wheelhouse as this, what we're talking about is in terms of hype, uh, you know, the 24-hour news cycle, which really now is every hour there's news and it's all day, every day. And going back to the idea of like E3 being dead, this past E3 when there was no show, 
everybody decided we're going to do our own showcases. Mm -hmm. And you had all these different publishers who did their own little broadcasts. Mm -hmm. And I remember more than one media personality kind of commenting saying, now I feel kind of overwhelmed because it was like a two-week marathon, mm -hmm. if not longer, of just, uh, you know, showcase after showcase after showcase after showcase. And like that kind of opened its own interesting Pandora's box of like, well, now you got your wish. There's no E3. Yep. And now it's, you know, everybody and their mother with a showcase. And how are you supposed to pay attention to all of it? Yeah. You can see how something like E3 maybe acts as a bit of a filter. Mm -hmm. So, like, not only do you have maybe experiences you wouldn't have otherwise, but it also maybe kind of settles the noise a bit. Because mm -hmm. let's face it, not everything that shows up at E3 is good. Mm -hmm. And not everything that shows up at E3 is necessarily worth reporting. Mm -hmm. So... It's like you have it in three days. You know, you've got three days to, to announce, your, announce your stuff and... And that's it. Yeah, if you were a games journalist, it was always the case that if Nintendo decided they wanted to announce something on some random day, that it would have to be your business to cover it. Mm -hmm. But it is more the case now that Nintendo is likely to be like, hey, two days, we're going to we're going to add some stuff. Be there. Whereas, <laughs> you know, in 2005, that just would not have happened. There would have mm -hmm. been like very specific windows, very specific events. Yeah. We're probably getting close to the end of this, but I would like to say that one hype event from my childhood that i wish still existed is nintendo's uh space world mm, yeah i forgot about space world and so for those who don't know what it is or was space world was basically nintendo's e3 in japan and the public could go to it mm -hmm. Mm. so nintendo would just i'm not sure how long it would last i don't know if it was over multiple days or if it was a day but they would uh take a convention center set up all their games and systems and people could come and try them out why do they call it Space World? I don't know. Maybe it makes more sense in Japanese. Like, <laughs> I don't know what the name actually meant. You remember that trailer? I think it was from Space World of Link and Ganon fighting. I think it was like a GameCube tech demo yes, or something. Yes, and that was before Wind Waker. Yeah. And so when Wind Waker came out, you know, when they were announcing it, yeah. that trailer was such a problem for them yeah. because it was, quote, a tech demo. Yeah. And then you got Cartoon Link and everyone was like, wait. So you could give me the game that looks like this, yeah. but you're giving me Wind Waker. Now, granted, I love Wind Waker yep. and it, everything worked out, but at the time, yep. it was so disappointing. Yeah, it was cool because Link and Ganon are fighting. Link and Ganondorf are fighting, and uh, I think like Link gets knocked back, and he like tosses his shield aside and then you know takes a master sword in two hands and like runs a ganondorf at it but it was just it was so cool it was like wow i've never seen like like be that hardcore before well you know the the other memorable zelda trailer from space world is i think it's the 97 tech demo of what would become ocarina where mm -hmm. link is fighting a some kind of metal knight thing and i believe nintendo said they whipped that up pretty quick before e3 and I had written a history piece about Ocarina of Time, and I remember as I was researching it that uh, some journalist, I forget which magazine it was, but they scoffed at the demo and said, there's no way that that's gameplay. <laughs> like, that's going to be probably an, an FMV, you know, in the game, but the game's not going to look like that. And they were, like, almost scandalized that Nintendo showed it. Like, you can't tell people that that's what Zelda's going to be. We all know it's not going to look like that. And then Ocarina of Time is way better than that demo ever was. Yeah. But it, it speaks to how the... <laughs> it speaks to what an evolutionary leap N64 was because journalists were sitting there like, oh... I mean, we've seen Mario 64, and that looks great, but look at this. Oh, it's not going to look like that. Mm -hmm. And then that was not the case. It ended up looking better. Yeah. So I, I never paid that much attention to Space World, but one thing that I do, 
I don't expect it to come back. I don't even know. Anyhow, um, this I think would have been before either of your time, but when when Sega was promoting the Genesis in like the late 80s or around 1990, um, at least in some malls, I think they did like a tour of malls around the country. And one of them was the Del Amo Fashion Center in Torrance. And there was just like, you know, kiosks where they'd be showing off like Altered Beast or whatever. This was before... Sonic was the Genesis mascot. I think Altered Beast was one of the things they originally really tried to pitch the the system with. And I just remember, like, you know, the mall was already a cool space to go to. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. And and then just to have, like, video games that looked, you know, they don't look as good as arcade games of the time. But they're still, like, Mm -hmm. way better looking than um, the NES stuff I had at home. Yeah. That was exciting. One other thing I want to call out, it's so particular to my own mall experiences, but I also remember, I guess around the same time, going to the mall with my mom and ending up in, it was like, there might be a department store called like Robinson something. I don't remember mm-hmm. what it's called. That or Bullocks, but like just some department store and like tucked away as a display inside the department store in the mall was an NES and a TV and like some weird promo cart version of Mega Man 3. Hmm. If I'm remembering this correctly, it only had like two of the robot masters in it. But I remember hmm. like sitting down on the floor playing Gemini Man. It was like weird stealth marketing. Interesting. But, yeah. Those, that was another aspect. And, you know, touching upon, again, the idea of being in person versus all the remote stuff that has become the norm now. Yeah. Uh, I remember being in, I think it was an FAO Schwartz for both of these. Uh, the FAO Schwartz that was in San Francisco, seeing Knights on Saturn, mm-hmm. and damn, that blew my mind. <laughs> I remember seeing that just thinking, is this real? <laughs> and also seeing uh, Sonic Adventure. Sonic Adventure was mm-hmm. also similarly impressive for its time. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting talking about graphics from back in the day, because, I mean, even the crappiest games now are in HD. And, you know, especially with things like Unreal Engine, so like, I don't know if everybody understands, you know, if you're like more casual as a gamer, Unreal Engine, which you'll probably see pop up on title screen for a lot of your games. Basically, it's like instead of coding and creating all of the game world, all of the physics, all of the textures, Unreal Engine gives you all of that. And you can focus more on fine tuning and tweaking it. And but like the basic core of your game is there in Unreal And stuff like that was not the norm the way it is now, especially Unreal. Unreal is kind of used for tons of games now. Whereas if you were making Ocarina of Time, like you were coding every bit of that and making it. And so besides the fact that HD TVs didn't exist in the 90s and flat screens and all that, it's just it's very interesting looking at games now and people talking about like, for example, like Donkey Kong Country and maybe not being impressed by it in 2021 but when donkey Kong country was new that was just stunning like you're sitting there looking at your screen thinking this looks like some kind of cartoon or something and yeah i think for donkey Kong country uh maybe more than any other super nintendo game really benefits from the like the fuzziness lent to it by crts Mm -hmm. it's it's really easy to see like the artifacts of like the 3d model posing when you're uh when you look at it now on an HD screen. But yeah, at the time, that was, it looked crazy good. Mm-hmm. And even the early 3D stuff, like that lacks HD, was also similarly impressive. Like playing Mario 64 was just mind blowing. 
the first time you ever saw it booted up. And all the way, I mean, even by the time you get to the PS3 era, and you know, even now there's obviously great looking games, but I would say from N64 up to PS3 was that real sweet spot for just seeing this evolution of 3D gaming and just being perpetually just kind of like wowed. Like, that's something I'm, else. <laughs> I'm not going to put up with you excluding PS1 from this. That came out in... Well, that, when I say N64, I include PS1. PS1 came out in, like, 94, man. Anyway. That first Crash Bandicoot, oh, man. That's another one of those games that stunned me as a kid. My cousin Dominic had the PlayStation, and uh, he, had, he either had Crash or had a demo disc with Crash. And I just remember thinking, I wish I could play this all the time. It was just so freaking cool looking. Yeah, I played that at a demo kiosk. And I don't remember what kind of store. It was like a it's like a like a sound audio supply store at some point. But I guess like PlayStation was part of the uh, the dream hi-fi setup. <laughs> all right. Well, this is a point to wrap things up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, all right. We may be out of things to talk talk about and even if not, like apparently my voice is starting to give. So <laughs> That might the be. eighth episode ends with Zach's death. <laughs> uh, you've been listening to the Seven Minutes podcast, indeed. And uh, you are no longer listening to the Seven Minutes podcast. In three, two, one.